0: hi everybody liam here i just wanted to let you know that today's episode is going to be a bit different as you may know in addition to the east bay yesterday podcast i also have a radio show on kpfa fm 94.1 in berkeley a single episode of the podcast usually takes me about 80 to 100 hours of work to produce sometimes more It's because I normally do everything by myself. Research, tracking down sources, interviewing them, transcribing the interviews, writing the script, mixing the audio, everything. Anyway, the point is that the radio show on KPFA is every two weeks, so the format's a bit different because I could never keep up with the pace. Instead of the podcast format, which is a highly produced narrative show with a bunch of different interviews and sound design and a script, a big part of the radio show is just a straight up one-on-one interview with a guest about whatever local history topic I'm covering that week. Nothing fancy, no frills, just a good conversation. Now, I haven't been releasing those one-on-one interviews on this podcast because I've been trying to stick to a certain kind of format. But I decided to make an exception this week, for a few reasons. First, I thought that you, the audience of the East Bay Yesterday podcast, would be interested in hearing from Cheryl Fabio, a lifelong Oaklander who directed an incredible documentary called Evolutionary Blues, West Oakland's Music Legacy. So that's what you're about to hear, my conversation with Cheryl. Second, I wanted to do this as a kind of experiment to see if people are okay with me sprinkling in some of these straight up Q&A style shows into the podcast feed. So please let me know what you think. Drop me a line at eastbayyesterday at gmail.com or hit me up on social media. Uh, Do you think it's a good idea to switch the format back and forth or should I just stick with what I've normally been doing even though you only get one new episode about a month? And third, another thing that will help me produce more podcasts, is if I can spend more time on East Bay Yesterday. Uh, I don't get paid to do this show. um, And I don't get paid from KPFA either. Uh, This is basically like a labor of love. And in order to spend more time on it, I will need your support. If you could kick down a few dollars, every little bit helps. I don't need a big budget to do what I do. I'm just trying to survive in Oakland right now. And you know how that is. So, if you can support the show, drop me a donation at patreon.com slash yesterday. That's patreo dot com slash yesterday. Thank you so much for whatever you can afford to give. Alright, so now we'll get into the good stuff. Here's my interview with Cheryl Fabio about Evolutionary Blues, and if you haven't seen it yet check out evolutionarybluesfilm.com for uh, listings on upcoming screenings. And in this interview, Cheryl and I talk about one of my favorite local blues legends, Sugar Pie DeSanto. So as a bonus, I'm including an episode I did all about Sugar Pie uh, after my interview with Cheryl here in in this show that I'm putting out today. That Sugar Pie episode originally came out in 2017. Um, and Sugar Pie is one of the funniest people I've ever interviewed, so I hope you'll stick around after Cheryl's interview to listen to the, the Sugar Pie show, even though it's rerun, um, because Sugar Pie is wildly entertaining. She's such a great storyteller, and that episode is one of my favorites. Okay, let's just jump right into things. Here's my interview with Cheryl Fabio. Cheryl, in the film, you really bring the history back to life. Can you describe the 7th Street scene? What would it have been like to hang out there and do some club hopping back in the 1950s?
1: Almost everybody would talk about how full the streets were. With folks coming to get good food, I mean, my family would go to the barn um, for a special treat, Go for good food. For uh, some of the best musicians in the country would come through there, and you'd never really know. There'd be a lot of local, like local standards playing, but also you could go and catch some amazing national talent.
0: I, I know that probably a lot of people of older generations, this movie brought back so many good memories and reminded them of you know the music they loved in their youth. But what about young people and young people in Oakland? How did they respond to this film?
1: My experience is that young people haven't figured out yet there's a cycle in life. So my goal in the arc of our film was to, sh- to show the connectedness of these decade generations and say, you know, like, this is rooted in that, and that's rooted in this, and, and look, we got hip-hop out of all of it. So our audiences have been gray-haired. Because that, they're automatically attracted to it. They know what I'm talking about instantly. But when I do get young people, they do find it interesting. They do find it intriguing. And what I'm hoping is that there's a body of information that comes at young people to remind them that there's a cycle to the way that we live, the things that come up. So we're in another cycle right now. And I always tell people, you know, this doesn't surprise me. I've seen it before. And I know that we only get pushed back so far, and then we push back, and we'll get through this. There'll be a lot of bruising in the process. But I think I get that from young people, that, oh, there is a connection.
0: What you just mentioned about how hip hop is connected to the blues and how you trace that evolution in the movie through the funk era um, is so important. Because you know I remember as a young person, uh, getting into hip hop and I had no idea where these samples were coming from right. or you know where this bass line was coming from. And then as you get older and you learn and you start digging into, you know, the funk era and then you go back to the jazz, you know, scene from the fifties and even earlier, it's amazing to be enlightened about how deep this musical conversation goes.
1: To me it was just it was music. That's it's it's the difference between the artists and the industry that makes that erases what the foundation, I think, of our, our of our musical heritage is. And also the fact that again, we're in my film we're talking about black artists, and black artists are always being erased. So nothing new there.
0: Last time we talked, you told me that, you know, speaking of the foundations of this music, that your personal expertise wasn't on blues history but what made you qualify to tackle this subject was that uh, you said, quote, I've been black all my life. Can you tell me a little bit what you meant by that? And then maybe tell me a little bit more about your background as well.
1: Okay. That means that I come at this with a certain sensibility, but also I'm old enough to have, even if it's on a surface, lived through that time and my perspective is probably more valid than if Ken Burns was doing it, because I lived in it, right? So that's one part of it. But the other part of it is that actually, you know, my family was a very locally involved family, and my mother was a writer, she was an artist, my father was an artist. There were other things as well. In Oakland? In Oakland, yeah. Well, in East Oakland, but in Oakland. And if you lived in East Oakland, you were always hearing about West Oakland. There was a connection, and... Part of that film story is, of course, when people were moved out of West Oakland, they moved to East Oakland because that was the other place in Oakland that black folks um, could buy or rent or whatever it was. But my family was always exploring music and art and, and, and all of that. And in fact, you know, um, as a result of making that film, I ended up doing the liner notes for an album my mother had done that was called Juju's Alchemy of the Blues. She was a poet but a poet with a a band, it was a family band, with a couple of the musicians from our film. So, you know, when I say I've been black a long time, that means that I'm in a position where things are coming in and out of my sensibility, and what I have to do, and what I had to do in that film was connect them to real, you know, ideas that I had, things that I could remember at six. So the process for me was thrilling because I it really exploded a lot of memories that I had that were very soft memories, and I got to test them in this film and and they bore out. Uh, so,
0: like, is there an example of the kind of memories that you're talking about that you can share with me?
1: Well, one of them is when K Top came to me. I kind of laughed because you know I worked at K Top for a while and. I, you know, I was one of the senior people. KTOP,
0: Oakland's local public access TV station.
1: Well, we're not—they weren't public; they're government access, and there's a big difference in the in. And this is a KTOP production, so they both uh, provided the funding for it, but they were also my crew in doing it. But anyway, they came to me, and I kind of laughed. Uh, okay, you know, this is when being old is a is a plus, right? And then I had to dig and figure out. Why should I be the one to tell this story? And I had just read, I think I mentioned that before, I just read Isabel Wilkerson's book, so I knew I wanted to frame it in terms of that great migration. It's how my family came here. It's how so many black people came here. Not everyone, but so many of us did. But also, it was a chance to dig into something that as a kid I was curious about, because my brothers would... One in particular would hang on on, West, on 7th Street and come back with amazing stories and then kind of, na-na-na-na, nana, nana, you don't get to go. <laughs> and it's true,
0: I didn't. A minute ago, you mentioned the, uh, the Isabel Wilkerson book, The, is it the Warmth of Other Suns, correct? Mm-hmm. And that gets into the history of the Great Migration. Um, so I want to talk about that path uh, that so many people took, and that was a big part of the blues migrating out of the South. So when, when African-Americans, when black folks were migrating to the East Bay from the South, I, I guess I'm, the question I'm getting at is why do you think the blues really took root in Oakland and other East Bay towns like uh, Richmond? What allowed the blues to really flourish here
1: and thrive? Well, First of all, the migration was from the South, North and East and West, and we know well the story of it, of black people migrating to Chicago and New York and, and in northern places like that. But what we haven't heard a lot about is, how did people get here? But then once people get here, Jim Crow was, you know, that's like two words, Jim Crow. But the experience of Jim Crow living was horrific. This is a daily a cost on every not every sensibility you have, as well as uh, a threat to your life. So people have to survive in an environment like that. So they turn inward and they turn to whatever it is that they've got at them, and that's how your self entertainment of in in days of slavery, whether it was field hollers or. Later, you know, the beginnings of the blues to the development of it. And it's us making a way for ourselves within ourselves and by ourselves. So when it came here, then I think the thing that's so interesting about Oakland is you've got that, uh, that western part of the south moving here. And then living in a really dense community, west Oakland was dense. East Oakland was very spread around and they're influencing each other like i like the story of a kid walking out of his front door and larry graham and and you know some of the major musicians are just outside playing music and that's when the spark goes off i want to do that too and he does and he spends his life doing it so you're you've got the proximity to just connect with each other consciously and and unconsciously and i think that's what that's about it's it's also the economy that you can raise you don't have to ask anybody for a loan to play the blues you just have to learn it and do it right and then in oakland again it's the particular mix of who was here and uh, you know and we say the four places of of alabama of texas of louisiana and oklahoma but other influences came through as well and so you do get a certain uh, flavor to what happens in Oakland that's a little different than what happened in Chicago or what happened, what came to New York.
0: And I don't want to go too far in this conversation without bringing up the name of Bob Geddes, because you really can't talk about Oakland's blues history without talking about Mr. Bob Geddons. So uh, for listeners who might not be familiar with his legacy, can you talk about what was his role and what was his influence on
1: the on the West
0: Oakland and the whole West Coast blues scene, really?
1: Well, you know, Bob, one of the reasons that he's so important is that, number one, when he came to Oakland, he came from L.A., and he recognized that nobody had really capitalized on moving that music around, and so we did that. But I think one of the more more important things is that he was kind of a mechanical genius, and so he hand-built a recording studio that Recorded local musicians, and then he uh, dog and ponied them around the country. So there are other musicians, and people always say, "Well, why didn't you mention this person? Why didn't you?" And it's true that there were other, and some of them may be more high-powered and more successful, but none of them were as prolific in recording the blues as Bob Giddings was, and he did it by the seat of his pants. I think that's the thing about. You know, um, as a uh, even being a young girl, but as a black woman, I see the talent in our communities, and I did work at at uh, at San Quentin, and I saw geniuses sitting in cells at San Quentin, and our culture just won't get to it. They won't. They won't recognize that there's a a genius that you develop because you've got to come up with your own resources and. That kind of an external thing, you don't have the same thing when you're you you know, when you're a Donald Trump with millions of dollars that your dad gave you. You don't have that same genius. You might have something, but you don't have that. And uh, Bob Giddens really had that. And stories about him are amazing because that's what people remember. Whether they're calling him a genius or not, they remember how he was able to do so much with so little. And it's kind of like heart work.
0: And he certainly had an ear for a hit, um, and and people. Some people did recognize his genius because Oakland became sort of a magnet for blues musicians from all over the country who wanted to come here and perform and record. Can you talk a little bit about that? How uh, the mini empire that Bob Geddens was building here really be- drew people from all over the country to Oakland.
1: Well, you know, I do think the fact that he did the dog-and-pony shows with these records all over the country, contributed to that. But I also think, again, that maybe the Pullman Porters, and they're going back and forth around the country, uh, the fact that this was the last stop on the railroad going west, they were, and...
0: Can you explain who the Pullman Porters are for people who might not be familiar?
1: Right. Well, Pullman train cars were sleeper cars, and at a point, the uh, owner of the Pullman trains only hired black men to be the uh, porters. And the thing was that they hired people who had law degrees, they had p- hired people because, you know, again, we were back in uh, the Jim Crow era, and these were steady, decent jobs compared to a lot of other things. And when People took those jobs. They knew that they had the ability to move around the country, to spread word, to pick up what was going on all over the place. And so the stature of the Pullman Porters grew and grew and grew, up to the point where C.L. Dellums and A. Randolph Hearst did one of the first labor actions on Pullman and got them a union, got them unionized. Right,
0: and they were one of the most powerful
1: black unions in the country for a while. Well, I think they were the first black union in the country, and so that certainly made them powerful. Mm-hmm. And it it, it created a model that other people could emulate as well in terms of how do you do that? Because remember, in those days, unions also were segregated. So they might let you in at one point, but you didn't get the work. So... It's all so complicated, but anyway, all of that, and then the thing about Oakland that uh, is
0: well, yeah. I was going to say, and just to finish connecting that thread on the Pullman porters is yeah. that they became sort of a de facto distribution network, Absolutely. right?
1: Absolutely, because they would could. I mean, they not they distributed albums, they distributed newspapers, so people learned uh, they got the Chicago Defenders because of the Pullman porters. Who would it was illegal to have the Chicago Defender, which was the preeminent black newspaper that came out of Chicago, and they would just drop them off in places uh, along the railroad tracks, and people knew to go and pick up a bundle and distribute them around. And that's how people had some sense about what was going on around the country. Both with news and with music. With news and music, and, and probably everything else, your, how your family is doing. So if I know that so-and-so is on the trains that going to Oakland, I go check in on Mary, and Mary would probably feed him a dinner. And I mean, you know, that was our connectedness in, in the days of that. And, um, you know, again, it's making, it's making something out of nothing. We're, we're pretty good at that.
0: I'm wondering if you feel like in the big picture of American blues history, is the Oakland blues scene overlooked? Did you hear from blues aficionados who saw your movie and were like, wow, I learned something new that I didn't know before because Oakland isn't always a part of that bigger blues conversation when people are talking about American blues history?
1: Well, you know, blues, uh, it happens in hip hop. I mean, there's always—the West Coast is just out of the sight of the rest of the country. So I get a lot of people saying, oh, you know, I had kind of heard about that, but but now I get it, right? Um, And I think that part of that is, first of all, we're talking about a period, where most of those aficionados were babies when it started, right? So they didn't live through it is number one, but also they've never seen sugar pie. They've never seen They didn't know Bob Giddens. They don't know some of the people that are in our film that are the icons for what was going on here. So they're seeing them, they're hearing their. But also the fact that we've laced this history and also the Oakland struggle through it, it presents it in a different way. And I think it does make people stop and say, oh, you know, I had heard that Oakland had a a solid music scene, but, you know, now I get it. And the thing about Oakland that I understood much better because of making this film is that we had amazing bands. And, you know, that kind of goes back to we had an amazing school system that wasn't amazing in some ways, because some of the musicians tell me that they they graduated without knowing how to read. It depends on what years you went to public school in Oakland. But others of them, we had a very rich music program in McClyman's in particular in in, uh, West Oakland, you had teachers in those days that came from the South to teach the black migrants in the Bay Area, and they knew how to teach them. They knew how to value those children. They knew how to uh, prepare them for a future. And so you really had a lot of uh, amazing music teachers, uh, opportunities. We had great venues. uh, So all of that contributes to it.
0: Right, yeah, so many, so many legendary local clubs. Slim Jenkins, mm-hmm. Esther's Orbit Room, uh, Don Barksdale's Don clubs Barksdale's. like The Sportsman. Um, I, w- something that we really need to talk about is the fact that you cover the rise of the Oakland blues scene and then also the tragic fall of it as well. It ended so abruptly, and uh, yeah, can you just tell me a little bit about why it came to a screeching halt in the way that it did?
1: You know, I wish I could uh, do a timeline of that music, the the life of the music and the life of black people in Oakland as well. Because I think the abrupt ending came at a point where there was actually a pushback because of all of the activities of the 60s and the 70s, locally and nationally. Civil rights was in everybody's. And white Oakland did not want, uh, they didn't want to deal with it and they began to shut down venues. Uh, but also there was an economy change, and so people were unemployed. That means that they're not going out and spending the same kind of money. It means that the, loan, uh, the, the banking industry locked down on loans, and so Seventh Street, you look at those uh, structures and you recognize that they just fell into a dilapidated state, not because the merchants didn't care, but because they couldn't get the money, the resources, to maintain those spaces. So, and then you had, of course, you know, like we do say in the film, you had the post office come in, you had Bart being, and Bart's, ugh, yeah, all of those things together. Uh, yeah,
0: I mean, there's a, there's a photograph that you show in the film that I think if people didn't see it with their own eyes, they might not believe it because it sounds so horrific, but there's literally a tank that was brought in to demolish people's homes that they were evicted from they did not leave voluntarily from in West Oakland
1: and you know and then the, of course the insult on top of insults so all of the men in our film or 90% of them had gone to war and fought for this country they came back home and, you know, there was still a period where they were able to do what they did. And, and, but at the point where their industry was being shut down, of course, what happened next was there's this influx of illegal drugs in our communities. Now, we know that black people don't make all that stuff. So somebody is putting that in our communities and, you know, pain. the reason people do drugs is because they're in pain. So that also just nailed nailed the coffin. That all of a sudden, all of this stuff is going down. It's happening all at the same time. Incarceration started its escalation. That's like a ton of reasons why uh, why that community was targeted.
0: Absolutely. One thing I want to make sure that we cover is the fact that there, besides your incredible film, Evolutionary Blues, there are other folks out there struggling and, and fighting and, and working hard to keep the uh, the legacy of Oakland Blues alive. Is there anyone you want to give a shout-out to or anything else you want to mention in terms of folks that are interested in learning more or seeing the Oakland Blues?
1: Well, I mean, who's really doing that are the musicians themselves. So it's not thriving, but they're still they're still pushing it. The blues world itself has flipped colors, so you find in 10 performances, maybe one of them are black. But my hat goes off to all of those musicians, and they're all over the place. They're in Oakland, they're in Richmond, they're in Sacramento. We've got a thriving community. It's just a hard sell. And then the other part of me, because I live in the art world generally, is that It's true to be an artist is to put yourself in a fairly precarious position. And so it's not like it's only the blues musicians. It's artists um, are just devalued to some degree. But they continue.
0: The precariousness of artists is, is part of my next question. It goes far beyond artists as well. But one thing I'm, I'm I'd love to hear your opinion on is just the fact that uh, you know West Oakland has changed so much in the last uh, decade or so, um, even in the last probably five years since you started working on the film, West Oakland has gone through a lot. Can you talk a little bit about what you see happening in, not only in West Oakland but all of Oakland right now? What are your thoughts on the state of this uh, rapid transformation that Oakland seems to be going through?
1: First, I want to say in West Oakland, there's still a lot of families in West oakland and that's, that, there's some heartfelt, what's missing is that economic strip. What I've seen is there's a real push to try and capture that history and make that history more public. So that's, that's sort of happening. But people, whenever I show this film, people will say, well, can, can that community come back? No, neighborhoods don't come back. They're gone, so it's gone. And if you get anything like it, it's going to be a commercialized version of it, which isn't the same thing as what West Oakland was. But we are trying to, there's a a development that's trying to capture the history and make it known that this street was once something special. In East Oakland, um, there's some of that going on too. There's uh, some community input on development out there. Maybe we can hold on to some of the history of East Oakland before it disappears but i'm just determined not to get pushed out and i'm here by the th- you know a thread but i but i do that with determination last
0: question i know that you still are involved in community work creative work what do you want people to know about what you're working on these days or anything exciting that you got coming up
1: so i'm doing a project at a library in East Oakland that's called Resistance, Resilience, and Anticipation. And it's sort of a reminder about that cycle that the black arts movement of the 60s and 70s laid a foundation that some people won't even recognize for uh, new art. And it can show up in dance, it can show up in writing, it can show up in music, it can show up all over the place. So we're going to have a series of films and, and conversations with artists about how the black arts movement, like what did it accomplish? What did it leave left undone? And what's the, how has it been the foundation for artists' work today? I'm really excited about that.
0: Well, I'm excited about that too. I can't wait to see it. And, uh, Cheryl, Fabio, thank you so much for talking to me again. Um, For anyone who hasn't seen it, go out and check out Evolutionary Blues. Next time there is a screening, you can find it on Facebook. Uh, There's a website. And keep your eyes uh, peeled for this movie because you don't want to miss it.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past.
1: (laughs) Let's Let's begin.
2: My mother wanted me to, and my father didn't want me to. Nope.
0: That's Sugar Pie DeSanto. She's talking about how when she was a girl growing up in San Francisco's Fillmore District... Her dad didn't want her singing in the local jazz clubs. This was back in the early 50s, when the Film War was known as
2: Harlem of the West. He came to see me one time, I'll never forget it. And while I was saying, ah, you know, shake your butt, and grabbed me by the ear and put me outside. we go home, I said, I ain't going home with you, I, I, I'm working, you know, no, no, no. You know, And he told the club, no. No. Too young. She shake her butt. I no like. You come. Sugar Pie's
0: dad came to the United States as a sailor from Manila. Her mom was from Philadelphia and was African American. They ended up having 10 kids. And keeping
2: Sugar Pie from the stage, psh, just wasn't going to happen. My mom would cover, you know. She'd tell him I was visiting somebody else, really, to let me go on. Because she knew I had it. I loved it. So yeah. my mom agreed because she loved it. And her grandfather, my grandfather wouldn't let her. That's what held her back. So then my daddy was holding me back. Mama mom said, uh-uh, come on. I said, daddy's going to kill me. He said, no, he's not. I tell him, you gone over to Aunt Rosalie's. Even after Sugar Pie made it big as a
0: singer, touring the world, jumping off pianos with James Brown, blowing away crowds at the Apollo, her dad never really approved of her career choice.
2: He was always against it a little bit. He didn't like it because he said I shook my button. He didn't like that. I told him, I shake. Yeah, now I'm going to shake. The soul side of me going to shake, okay? Sugar Pie DeSanto is now in her 80s,
0: and she is still shaking. I'm not playing around. Just listen to how she says crowds react to seeing her up there.
2: I said, my God, did you see that woman 80 years old? She did a backflip. What? (laughs) She ain't no 80 years old. Yo, yes, she is, too. Did you see she, oh, did you see her jump up on that man and lock her legs around his neck and hang upside down and put it in his face? I said, you know.
0: Look, there's nothing I can really say that will do justice to this woman's energy and charisma and talent. I know it's a cliche, but she's literally said shit that made me fall out of my chair. So let's just get the show started. I'm Liam O'Donohue, and this is East Bay Yesterday. Stay tuned, because today's episode is all about the wild, wild life of longtime Oakland resident, the one and only Sugar Pie DeSanto.
2: (music) Can
0: you tell me a little bit about learning music from your mom? Because you used to sing while she played piano, right? Right.
2: <laughs> now that was funny. <laughs> she she played and I'd sing. Then she'd go, it's the wrong note. Palaya, see that's my real name. Umpalaya. really, Umpalaya. Um, that's Filipino. It means bitter melon or a sour fruit in my father's language, Tagalog. Mm-hmm. You know. And she would go, Palaya, that's the wrong note. I said, What, what do you mean? Now get, it. and she'd have a little ruler. She said, Do it again. I said, I'm not doing anything. It's the wrong note. I said. <laughs> She brought me all the standards, you know, like Blue Moon. I never sung no no blues and stuff. I wasn't born in that kind of house. Uh uh-uh. uh. No no no. She was so proper. You know what I mean? So now get it right. Start again. Said so yes. Uh, yeah ma'am. Yes ma'am. <laughs> okay. And that's how I learned. And today, I have what over hundred, maybe two hundred standards in my brain that where my mother taught me, I can go back to any of them. Sugar
0: Pie's mom never really learned how to read music. She didn't have to. She could hear a song and just play it. Even though her mom and dad tried to keep discipline in the house, Sugar Pie was a little hellraiser in the streets, especially after her cousin James Etta moved up from L.A. to stay with them. You probably know James Etta better by her stage name, which basically just moves the back part of her name to the front. That's right, Sugar Pie's cousin was Etta James, one of the most renowned singers of the 20th century. Anyway, Etta had a really messed up childhood, and when she got to the Fillmore, her and Sugar Pie and Sugar Pie's sister and some other girls started a gang called Seven of Diamonds. It wasn't being a little hooligan that landed
2: Sugar Pie in a serious dilemma. It was Etta's mom. Etta James' mama took me with her to pick up Etta James from a gig in Holbrooks, Arizona. And she had this man with her. Do you know she left me on the streets of Holbrooks, Arizona, a young girl by myself, and accused me of looking at her man, her boyfriend? She asked my mama, Could I ride with her? And my mama said, Yeah, okay, since it's you, fine. And she got me way in Hobart, Saturdays, Arizona, and put me out of the car and left me on the street. If it wasn't for, for this lady that came, you know, saw me crying. I said, what is wrong, little girl? She left me. said, who? Eddie James' mama. She said, "Eddie James' mama. I said, yep, old Dorothy. She left me. I hated her. I never forgot it. I didn't have a way home, and so this lady, she took me in with her and her husband and got me a little job at the motel. And I worked, you know, with beds and stuff and stuff, and saved my money to get home, because when I called home, my mom and them didn't have no money to send for me. You know, you 10 kids, come on, come on now. So I just saved my little money, you know, and uh, she kept feeding me and giving things, treated me good too, took me to the fair, she loved me. You know, her name was Lily, i never forget it, and her husband Herman. Lily saved my life. She said, you come home, little girl. And then she took me to her home, got me a little job, but I was hiding my little money. And one night, a couple months later, I snuck off, I had to sneak. I made sure they were asleep. And that's how I got back home, because my family couldn't afford it with all them kids. You hop on a Greyhound? Oh yeah, took days, but I finally come home. Leaving yeah. this town. No use hanging round. I may be wrong, but we can get alone. And I'm going back where I belong.
0: This is classic sugar pie. She's been in lots of dicey situations, but she's always known how to take care of herself. And even though she's only four foot eleven and very petite,
2: she talks a real big game. I'm one of the roughest women woman you could ever know. I'm cool, I'm respectful, but don't push me. Because honey, I'll take this cane and you'll be lost. <laughs> I will.
0: She's laughing, but that's no joke. Stay tuned. When we get back, Sugar Pie gets her first record deal and moves to an apartment in the heart of West Oakland's thriving blues scene. In the early 50s, Ellis Theater in San Francisco used to have talent shows. Sugar Pie won pretty much every week. She was still just a teenager when she was discovered by a performer and producer named Johnny Otis. He's probably most famous for this song. Yep. The hand-jive guy discovered Sugar Pie, brought her down to L.A., and cut her
2: first record. I was so short and so little, I was to weigh, what, 80 pounds? <laughs> that I couldn't reach the microphones, because they was big, you know, during them days. And they put me on two boxes in the telephone book. That was the funniest <laughs> that I ever said. <laughs> so, what in the devil is going on, you know? And the band was and the songs. What in the devil? You know what I mean? Because I... I didn't know. I've never been in a studio like that, you know. And I recorded it. Please be true. And boom, diddy, wah, wow baby. I'll never forget it. <laughs>
0: The problem was, Johnny Otis didn't think Sugar Pie's birth name was very marketable. And he knew a little something about that. Johnny Otis's real
2: name was Ionis Alexandres Veliotes. And so then he said, now what are we going to name you? I said, I beg your pardon? He said, my name is um, Umpalaya Ballington. That's my... He said, well, we can't call you Umpalaya on a record. And I said, why not? You know, he said, because we're not. He said, i tell you what, and I'll never forget his words. He said, you're just a little old sugar. Shuggy, sugar that's what he told me. He said, that's it. We'll name you Sugar Pie. I said, Sugar Pie. He said, yep, and that's how I got it.
0: Did you like it right away, or did it take a little while to get used
2: to? I thought it kind of weird.
0: <laughs> but now you like it?
2: I've worn it all my life. <laughs> Ever since... uh. Yeah.
0: Did you know you wanted to be a singer then?
2: Oh, yeah. I used to sneak in the clubs around San Francisco and put the, uh, tennis balls up here. Sugar Pie grabbed her chest when she
0: said this, in case there was any confusion. She said that she used socks, too.
2: And uh, a pillow crossed my butt. I'm serious. I'm, it's true. That was back in the day to get a go-go. Oh, look at her. She shows sure is fine. I had that big old pillow. <laughs> Make me look like I had a bouteille. Ain't had nothing. And I'd go in the clubs and he said, how old are you? It doesn't matter how old I am. I think I'm old enough if I'm sitting in the club. And by the way, I'd like a shot of whiskey. He said, what? What? <laughs> I said, and then on top of that, I want to sing. You want to what? Who are you? <laughs> he said, I'm Sugar Pie. I always was fast, and I want the gig. Strike up the music, you'll see. And I didn't even know the band. Hey, you play so-and-so in G, okay? Whoop it up, let's go.
0: In the 1950s, West Oakland, specifically the area along 7th Street near where the BART station is now, that was known as the capital of West Coast Blues. During World War II, tons of black migrants came from places like Texas and Louisiana to work in the East Bay shipyards, and they brought the blues along for the ride. Pretty soon, there were clubs, recording studios, and even a distribution network Because a lot of Pullman porters who lived in the neighborhood would bring records with them when they were working on trains that were going all over the country. After Sugar Pie got married to the guitarist Pee Wee Kingsley, the couple moved right into the heart of it, the corner of 7th and Wood. Whereas San Francisco was more known for jazz, Oakland was all about the blues. It was rowdier over here, too. Or as Sugar Pie puts it,
2: They were tearing up the town over here, oh lord.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about the West Oakland uh, music scene in that time?
2: Oh, it was just nuts. You know, I mean, everybody was running around trying to snort a little cocaine. That stuff was hot. That was really hot. And then they'd be drinking and acting a fool and shooting and talking crazy. I came up in it, boy. But then when you play places like Slim Jenkins, you were sharp. You dressed every week. So them were really my good days at Slim Jenkins and... Esters, Then we had uh, this guy named Don Barksdale. He used to play with the Boston Celtics. When he got through with that, he bought two clubs here called The Sportsman and The Showcase. They were
0: hot. Okay, just a few quick things about that club owner, Don Barksdale, who I should really do a whole episode about. One, he was born in Oakland and his dad was a Pullman porter. Two, he was the first black basketball player to be on the U.S. Olympic team and be named an NBA All-Star. Pretty big deal. And number three, he gave Sugar Pie the last name DeSanto Santo when she was performing regularly at his clubs. He just liked the sound of it. By 1959, Sugar Pie was a big star in Oakland, playing with famous musicians like Jackie Wilson when they were in town, but her recording career hadn't taken off. Then. She wrote a song called I Want to Know that she recorded with a man known as the Godfather of Oakland Blues.
2: I want to know if you miss me. I was at uh, Bob Getting's studio and I told uh, uh, Getting, I said, hey man. Say what you want to say, but I got one. And he was real, you got one, shoe right. I said, I got a hit. He said, where is it? I said, right here on this tape. Watch. He had his just drawled at him. I don't know if you want to play the thing. And you'll see, it. it's a hit. And then after he played, he said, oh my god, we're going to record tonight. <laughs> I bet
0: because he, was, he recorded everybody, so he must have known a hit when he heard one. Right.
2: And from there,
0: it went on. It sure did. The track, which her husband Pee Wee played guitar on, hit the R&B charts and got her a deal with Chess Records, one of the most important labels of the era. They moved her out to Chicago, where Chess was based, after they settled the uh, contract negotiations. I told him I wanted
2: a car. You know, I already had a car, but it wasn't what I want. I wanted the Cadillac, you know, with the big wings. <laughs> I got me a brown one of that light tan and bought me a dog that looked just same color and had him dyed the same color. Mm-hmm. Now that Sugar Pie had her
0: fancy car and dog to match, she was on her way to the big time she drove the new caddy out to New York to play for the world's toughest crowd at Harlem's most
2: legendary theater. The first time that I went to follow, I was doing my hit, you know, of course. And uh, they had a big thing in me outside the theater. I never did. (laughs) Life-size, you know. So when it's time to go on, I was scared to death. I had never been scared to go on, but I was frightened, you know, so, oh my God, they're gonna kill me. (laughs) Just in case you don't know, The Apollo
0: audience has kind of a reputation for not being very nice to performers
2: they don't like. I was there on Wednesday nights when they'd have the talent show. So what in the devil is going on? (laughs) And They was throwing these. (laughs) See, y'all didn't see it. They didn't show that on TV. They would pull you off stage though, right? Uh, Yep, they had this man that would jump out the balcony with a cane, with a hook on it. And his hat would go, and he'd jump down and take that cane and just pull you off. You know, by the neck, however he could pull you. And I cracked up laughing,
0: but it was not funny. Within seconds of taking the stage, she'd won the audience over. No eggs were tossed, and Sugar Pie was invited
2: back to the Apollo about 20 more times. That's where I got the Lady Jane Brown name. Says she She patted Jane Brown <laughs> you know. Damn she's good. You the Lady Jane Brown, that's what we're gonna call you. I said good.
0: Mm-hmm. Around this time, Sugar Pie went out on tour with the godfather of Soul himself. Did you ever ask the real mister James Brown what he thought about people calling you the lady James Brown? Did he think that was funny or what did he think Oh he that? just
2: laughed. He laughed at me. Oh yeah. Cause he had that funny voice, you ain't no, you ain't nobody but sugarpie. He said, Don't you go out there tonight and make me work too hard, you make me work too hard. I said, Why? You are the famous Jane Brown? I don't care. Don't make me don't you jump off that chair tonight. I don't want to work too hard, I said. Oh, you gonna work? Cause I'm. A <laughs> we were tight though. I said. You gonna work? Cause I'm gonna do- jump and make a rollover and all that stuff. And I'm jumping from the piano. You better not do that. I'm telling you, sugar. I said. You don't tell me what to do. I go. <laughs> well, I heard that sometimes you guys would even jump off the piano together. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever we felt, you just did it. There wasn't no set nothing to do nothing. Whatever hit you, that's what you did. I'ma do mine. And if I feel like I wanna jump on the floor and roll over or or toot my butt up in the air or whatever it is, that's what I'ma do. You know, it's just my type of soul. We had that kind of soul. And him too, he'd do anything. That boy was good.
0: Sugar pie and James Brown toured together for years, just blowing away audiences all over the country. But while her career was taking off, her marriage to Pee Wee
2: was falling apart. One time I had a, a suitcase, 10 grand, that I had made, you know, at the gigs I was doing. And I'd be, dang, that's what did it. I said, you really gotta go now. And you just had it bad.
0: Out on the road, Pee Wee got addicted to gambling. He'd disappear before a show, and Sugar Pie would find him out behind a theater or wherever, losing money.
2: He gambled too much. I was losing like crazy. So I said, no, 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 no. You got to go. Go away. So I gave him the Cadillac, and he came back to the Bay Area. Then they tell me he tried to rob a bank. I ain't know. pee we did? Yes, that's what they told me. I said, you're a liar. I said, no, I'm not. Said, you put, you got rid of him. He came back in and tried to rob the bank. I said, what? <laughs>
0: Long story short, Sugar Pie didn't see Pee Wee again for many, many years. But when he was really sick, near the end of his life, she traveled down to San Jose to help take care of him before he passed. He may have cheated on her, and as Sugar Pie put it, He did have a baby by this chick next door to us. Yeah, that happened too. And he may have blown her money playing dice and cards, but she eventually forgave him. I never, I'm never, gonna go away.
2: never go away because the is too strong. Mm-hmm. Never go away.
0: In the early and mid-1960s, there was a series of tours that went around Europe called the American Folk Blues Festival. This was one of the most important things to happen in the history of 20th century music. When the tour came through England, people like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton were there in the audience, studying. If you know blues and you listen to a lot of those early Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin albums, you can tell exactly where some of those famous riffs came from. Anyway, when Sugar Pie joined this tour in 1964, alongside legends like Lightning Hopkins, Willie Dixon, and Sonny Boy Williamson, she was the only female in the whole bunch. When you, when you did go on that famous tour in, uh, in England with all those blues legends, you were the One. only woman.
2: Only woman. What a mess. What was it like being <laughs> out on the road
0: with all these, uh, <laughs> these guys, you know, and you're the only woman and you're younger than them? It was you know? something
2: else. Uh-huh. <laughs> Everybody was trying to hit. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, you want to go to lunch? No. And then they, they start putting it around. else. she ain't <laughs> going out with nobody. <laughs> they couldn't entice me to, no. They were too old. Uh-uh, nope. Them old, old, old men, <laughs> Sunnyland Clem. them old people, really old, you know, to me. But there's no shame in the game with those guys. They'll uh-uh. just say whatever they want, That huh? That's right. Yeah, that, that, man, you know, and they thought I didn't hear them. I tried yesterday, man. I was trying to hit on Sugar. She won't even talk to it. She'll say hello, but she ain't gonna do nothing with you. Yeah, you could mm-hmm.
1: <laughs>
2: hear mm-hmm. Yeah, man, well, I did the other day too, but she didn't say nothing. Mm-hmm. Cause she act like she don't want none of us. <laughs> <laughs> which I don't, which I didn't. I just didn't, you know, I loved them, but music. Yeah.
0: Is, uh, is that, what you wrote the song, Get Back, about. (laughs) Yeah. That's one of my favorite songs of all time. I love that song. It's, how's it go? It goes, uh, you've been trying to get away with too much.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Don't need your love, so don't touch. Exactly. Hands off, I don't belong to you.
0: That's the line, hands off, I don't belong to you. Right.
2: Exactly. So
0: get back. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because there wasn't a lot of songs like that back then. I know. <laughs> no one else ever wants to say, oh, I love you, come give me a hug, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, beautiful. And even, you know, a lot of the songs you were singing, Rock Me Baby, all this stuff. Yep. But then you had the one song that was like, actually, it's when I say you can put your hands on me, that's when you can do it. But if not, get back, right? Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And I like the part where I say, you've been getting away with too much, don't need your love, so don't touch. Hands off. I don't belong to you. <laughs> so get back. <that. laughs> I don't belong to you. I tell you get your hands on. I not belong to you. No. So get back.
0: I should really warn you that Sugar Pie is not messing around when she says get back. Here's what happened when a guy in the front row of one of her shows didn't take her seriously.
2: I was on stage and he kept trying to grab my foot and I was, I said, don't do that no more, you know. I said, uh, 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 don't do that, you know, and I'm doing my thing. And he's grabbed, you know, at my foot. So I just hauled off and kicked him. Bam! He said, oh, <laughs> and I said, now come get this. Sugar Pie is happy to get up close and
0: personal with her fans. It just has to be on her terms. During her many years on the road... She got famous for doing this move where she would invite a big dude up from the audience on stage and then jump on him, wrap her legs around him, and then dangle upside down. The looks on the men's faces when she's basically using them as a human jungle gym are priceless.
2: I've had a few where I locked my legs and they went, Oh my God, what are you doing (laughs) looking at me? What is it? Don't worry about it. Just hold on, you know, and I'll do the rest. <laughs> I had one guy lock my legs, not around his waist, around his neck. Whoa. But he was a big guy. He could uh-huh. hold me. I said, now hold on, John, hold on. Don't you drop me. I ain't drop said, you better not. If you do, you're in trouble. And I was going. He said, oh, my God, help. <laughs> what is she doing? I said, don't worry about it. Evidently you like it. It's all in your face.
0: But her shows aren't all backflips and smiles. Hearing Sugar Pie sing the
2: blues? Well, that can hurt even worse than a kick in the face. I've had a man 300 pounds sit, to, sit there and literally cry like a little kid. <laughs> why are you crying he said I, she left me for some soldier oh lord I said, oh my god <laughs> you know and then I just went by and I really did it then I went over and I sung to him you know the blues <laughs> but then I controlled myself sugar don't do that mm-hmm. you know he's re- he's really hurting so then I hugged him, I said, that's okay. You know, I said, that's okay. And just like a big old baby, he this big old head. He leaned on, <laughs> said, it'd be all right. That's okay. I said, go ahead, cry some more. Go ahead, I'll help you. And he leaned on me. <laughs> I said, oh my Lord, <laughs> he was bigger than the chair. But I did come around. I felt so sorry because then I knew that he wasn't kidding you know, that she really had left him in that position, and he was really hurt.
0: Sugar Pies had more than her share of tragedies, too. She's been playing in clubs when gunfights have broken out, and she's seen people die right in front of the stage. The Oakland Hills Fire of 1991... Destroyed her musical archives when the house of her longtime manager, Jim Moore, went up in flames. But worst of all, she lost her husband of 27 years, Jesse Earl Davis, when their apartment near the corner of Telegraph and MacArthur
2: burned back in 2006. We were asleep. Yep, we were asleep. And I got up and the ceiling was on fire. And I went back to wake him up. And, uh, this thing was chaos, my cat, everything, you know, all my music, everything, you know, that I had at that time, you know, but, and so uh, he throw the blanket over me, you know, and get out of here and push me out the door. And I thought he was behind me, but I guess he went back to save Smoochie, my cat he know I love, so went back to save him and he got caught, of the, you know. He tried to kick the kitchen window, but it was, uh, had them bars, and he couldn't get out, and it got him. Just mm-hmm. like that, ever since then. I'm on my own, and I didn't want to become involved with nobody. Over the
0: decades, Sugar Pie wrote hundreds of songs and released many highly regarded albums. She's toured the world and won awards. The fire knocked her off her feet but she got back up and she's still planning to put out more
2: music on her longtime label, Jasmine Records. Show business ain't over for me. Not if God says so, it's not. I really, you know, love
0: it. If the two shows she's got lined up for this summer go well, we can hope to see Sugar Pie tearing up stages around the bay again sometime soon. And if you're planning on hitting the
2: show in Berkeley or Redwood City this July, look out. I still say I'm tough. Today, with all my little health problems, whatever. Cause when I hit this sucker, they better watch it, you know. Cause uh, I ain't to be played with. I know that. Mm-hmm. I just hope that I don't get a heart attack. <laughs> you yeah. uh, know. So
0: Thanks for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. For this episode, I want to thank Sugar Pie DeSanto and her longtime manager, the owner of Jasmine Records, Mr. Jim Moore. If you enjoyed the music in this episode, and I know you did, go to SugarPieDeSanto.com and buy her music from Jasmine Records. Seriously, show your love for the artist by supporting her career. Also, I want to thank KPFA FM, where you can now find East Bay Yesterday in the podcast section of their website, it's called Area 941, and also Berkeley Liberation Radio. Another big shout out to Ruth Gabrizius and the good folks at East Bay Express. You can see my article about Sugar Pie in this week's issue. Also, props to the Hard French crew and all the crate diggers out there. I'm still trying to figure out how to make this show sustainable. So if you know any foundations or grant programs or donors that might be a good fit for East Bay Yesterday, please hit me up. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I post photos related to each and every episode, as well as upcoming events and other cool local history news. There are links to all those social media pages at eastbayyesterday.com. If you appreciate the show, please spread the word. My marketing budget is $0, so I'd really appreciate it. And if you give East Bay Yesterday a shout-out on social media, please be sure to tag it. And review it on iTunes, too. That really, really helps. The theme song music came from Anatech. All right, see you next
1: time.